where did it start? See, I always thought the progression of my disease began with my first drink and ended with my last. And I'm here to tell you, uh, I've been around long enough to know that my disease did not end with my last drink, or I wouldn't be here today. And I have also written enough inventory to know that my disease did not begin with my first drink. The root of my disease is spiritual in nature, and it was there before I ever took a drink. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hola, compadres, and greetings from Studio AA deep in the heart of Texas. That thar was the voice of Mr. Joe Hawk that you heard at the beginning of this here episode number. 326, and you are going to hear so much more from Joe in just a moment, but first things first, this episode right here, this ep right here, is made possible by Terry, Kurt, Todd, and Lou. What, you may ask, did Terry and Kurt and Todd and Lou do what? Hey, that that rhymes, Lou do. But anyway, they went to our website, our humble little website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on that little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. So thank you so much, Terry, Kurt, Todd, and Lou. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. Right, so this one is Joe, by the way, I hope everybody is having a fantastic start of the new year, the Nuevo year, and and I hope you are having a Prospero Año to start us out here. Oh, so I guess that'd be a, uh, so that, that, that would be Nuevo Año. I hope you are starting, I hope you are having a Nuevo Año to start. At, at the start of the year. I have no idea what I'm saying anymore. But nonetheless, now we are on to Mr. Joe Hawk. And these are this is a series of recordings that um, was recorded at the Salvation Army over a 12-week pe- period in Santa Monica, Santa Monica, California in 1987. The gentleman you are about to hear, Joe Hawk, has gone on to the big meeting in the sky, but he left quite a legacy. I know you're going to enjoy this, and we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Enjoy, Joe Hawk. My name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. From my experience with these steps, we're at a very important point in the admission of the first step. Just to kind of review what we've covered so I can be centered and for anybody who hasn't been here, we've spent uh, approximately three weeks, uh, three hours on um, the first step. Basically, um, the first half of the first step, the admission of powerlessness over alcohol. We started with the doctor's opinion, and we learned that we can use every statement 
in the doctor's opinion, as a question for ourselves. Do I believe this? Is this true? Does this fit me? And we looked at an exercise with Bill's story to um, look for the similarities and, and not the differences and to mark everything that you can relate to in the way he drank and the way he felt and the way he thought. <laughs> We've looked at page 17 to 23 to further our admission about the body to answer a question. Can you control the amount of alcohol that you drink once you take a drink? In the bottom of page 22 and the top of page 23, they asked me to once again look at that and, and use those statements as questions. Am I positive that once I put any alcohol, whatever, into my system, something happens, which makes it virtually impossible for me to stop? And does my experience confirm that, that once I put any alcohol, whatever, into my body, something happened? We then uh, turned our focus to the mind to answer the question, can you control staying stopped? What is it that gets you back to the first drink time after time after time? And we spent 20 pages from page 20, 23 to page 43 on the mind of an alcoholic. The obsession. The idea that outweighs all other ideas. Some people call it an excuse. Some people don't think at all. Some people bring to mind every reason why they shouldn't and they find themselves in the bar. And we spent quite a long time on that. On the, on the bottom of page 43, this book, like, like myself, repeats itself over and over. They give you medical explanations. They give you psychiatric explanations. They give you stories. They give you point-blank statements. They repeat themselves over and over, and I believe everything from the doctor's opinion to page 43 has really been to look at two things, which they will once again look at again on page 44. But at the bottom of page 43, I think they summarize what we've looked at from page 23 to 43 as far as the mind. Why do I take, why do I take that first drink with a statement? The alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. I think if you believe that, it's time to go on. If you don't, you have some reservations about what we've covered up to this point. On page 44, we're really, we're really going to start to see now how this book can be used as a, as a checklist and how we, we will use these statements as, as questions. Because on the top of that page it says, in the preceding chapters you have learned something of alcoholism. So I ask myself, have I? We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. And here they go, repeating those same two things once again. If, when I honestly wanted to, did I find I could not quit entirely, could I control the stop? Or if, when drinking, did I have little control over the amount that I drank, could I control the amount that I drank after I, after I started to drink? See, they, may, they help us look at those two points once again. If those two things are true, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, there's a big question to consider. There's a lot to that, if I use it as a question for me. Do I believe I suffer from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer? Do I think there's any more outs for me? A little bit more of this, a little bit more money, the right girl, the right job, the right amount of information about myself, self-knowledge, the right amount of fear, the right threat, the right judge, the right wife, the right boss. Do I think there's anything human left for me to keep me sober, that will keep me sober? 
Or do I believe I suffer from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer? Now, it would be real easy if we could leave the first step at that. And I'll tell you, when I was new, this is how I wanted to rewrite that step. I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol. And that's why my life is unmanageable. You see the, the strange dichotomy there? I admit that my life, I admit that I am powerless over alcohol, and that's why my life is unmanageable. So, in the back of my mind, I think if you take the alcohol and you put it aside, everything will be fine, and I'll be able to manage my life just well, just fine. So, I needed some time to try that, and it took about four and a half or five months, and I have tried that since, to run my life on my power my own power, my self-will. To become convinced that the second half of step one has nothing to do with the first half unless you're still drinking and drugging. And that my life is not unmanageable just because I'm powerless over alcohol. You hear it all the time. Those who have been to meetings, you'll hear people use the term, I hit a sober bottom. Two, three, four, five, six, seven years. You know, what is it that really gets people after they've had some time in this program? You'll hear the common thing, I quit going to meetings. But I think under that, you hear a real basic thing with most of those people that go out after a long time that they might not admit right away. They thought they could manage their life on their own. Self-will took over. The ego re rebuilt itself. And they thought they could run their life now that they were sober. Which means to me they never got the second half of the first step. They thought that, yes, maybe I am. Maybe I can absolutely admit the first half of that step. When I put booze in my system, I can't tell you how much I'm going to drink. And I have a mind that's going to get me back to drink. And they get a little relief. They do a little work. The obsession to drink is removed. And then they take up the reins and think they can run their life on their own power. This is also a part of the first step that's overlooked a lot and that really needs to be looked into at depth. You know, how much of your life can you really manage? Now, let's once again, as we did with the disease, we looked for the disease within. In the body, my, mind, my body is different, and we looked for the disease within the mind. We did not look to find out why you were alcoholic out here in the world the family you came from, the friends you grew up with, the schools you went to, the jails, the treatment centers, the institutions. We did not look at the reason why you're alcoholic in the result of your alcoholism. We did not look for the reason why you're alcoholic in the circumstances of your life. So it would only make sense that we look for the manageability within. Maybe you can show up for meetings. Maybe you're in a marriage. Maybe you're holding down a job. Let's not look at any of that as to why your life is unmanageable. Let's look at what goes on in here, within. Because, you know, how many of us, like myself, have gotten all the little ducks in a row out here? I'll give you an example. I left the penitentiary, and I said to myself, if I was in this job, with this kind of apartment, and this kind of bank account, and this kind of car, and this kind of a wardrobe, with this kind of woman, and this kind of money, <laughs> everything would be fine, and I would be able to do real well. And within a year and a half after getting released from the penitentiary, I had that woman, that job, that car, that wardrobe, and that bank account, and I was still dying inside. And by then the plan had changed. Now I want to be here, and I want to have this. So I'm really glad that they helped me look at the unmanageability of my life within. And there's a great guide. There's a great paragraph on page 52 that helped me look at the unmanageability of my life. We also find that this is another great description of untreated alcoholism. Sober. And this was me before I ever took a drink. Once again, we, we're going to find the root of the disease that was there before I ever took a drink. 
talks about we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view as we were with alcohol and the body and the mind, my reaction to alcohol. Now we're going to look at my human problems, the unmanageability of my life. I'm having trouble with personal relationships. And I don't see that as out here. I don't see that as the relationship itself out here. Because I have one girlfriend that gives me too much attention. I have another girlfriend that doesn't pay me much attention. I'm mad at one for not giving me attention. I'm mad at the other for giving me too much attention. So it's not really the personal relationship out here I have trouble with. It's, it's the way I feel about it and the way I see it in here. I can't control my emotions. That's within. I'm prey to misery and depression. They just seem to drop on me from the sky. I don't really know where they come from, and it's always somebody else's fault. I can't make a living. Now, a lot of you are going to be able to say, what do you mean? I'm, I'm holding down a job. I'm doing real well. But does that, does that job, that living that you think you're making, satisfy you? Is it personally satisfying enough to where it can, it can keep you sober? I have a feeling of uselessness. I'm full of fear. I'm unhappy. I can't seem to be of real help to other people. It was not a basic solution of these problems more important than whether I see newsreels of lunar flight. Isn't it more important than anything that might happen in the future to look at myself as I am right now, sober? I'd like to go back to the um, first page of More About Alcoholism. Page 30. And there's a real simple statement here that kind of sums up what we're looking at here for me. And we hear it read in almost every meeting we go to. You know, they read a portion of, of chapter 3. It's the last sentence in the first paragraph. The delusion that I'm like other people. Okay, we've just spent 43 pages looking at how I'm different from other people in my reaction to alcohol. When I put some in my body, I lose control over the amount. When I don't have any in my system at all, I'm obsessed and it gets me back to the first drink. The delusion that I'm like other people, but what about, or presently maybe, sober has to be smashed. Because see, I suffer from the delusion that, okay, I'll, ad I'll give in, I'll admit, I'll admit that my, my physical and mental reactions to alcohol are different. But let's get the alcohol out of the way because, see, I still think that alcohol is the problem. So if we get the problem out of the way, I should be able to manage my life just fine. But, see, they changed my perception about both of those things. Alcohol was not my problem, although it got me in a lot of trouble and caused problems in my life. It was the solution to the problem. And every time they took it away and I put alcohol aside... It didn't get better. It got worse. Because here I am, 28 days, 14 days, 7 days, and there's the root of my disease staring me right in the face as we have identified it in this book. Restless, irritable, discontent. I'm full of fear. I feel useless. And there it is. It caught up to me once again, and I give in to that. And an obsession sneaks in and I take a drink to relieve that spiritual sickness that I suffer from. So I start to see that not only is alcohol not the problem, but when you take alcohol away, there I'm left with the real problem. And that presently, sober, I'm not like other people. Not only can you take a normal drinker, my neighbor, and convince him that his drinking is causing him a problem and give him a sufficient reason to stop, like this book says, a warning of a doctor or, or a, a love, love affair or a change of environment, a threat from a wife. He can stop his drinking. Okay? But there are also normal people who, if you take him on a Monday morning and convince them that a certain behavior that they're involved with is killing them, and they admit that and they see that, by Monday evening, their mind is not trying to talk them into doing it. 
You see, I'm not like other people now that I'm sober. Now, I feel the same things my neighbor does, but can I do the same things he can with it? He can hold on to resentment. He can retaliate. He can get revenge. Can I? He can keep fear. He can stay afraid. He can do weird things to get rid of fear. Can I? You see, what I want to think is that when now that I'm sober, now that the booze is out of the picture, I want to think that when I'm feeling something like resentment or fear or I'm being real selfish or dishonest, I want to think that what I'm feeling is the bottom line. See, but I've realized that once I know the difference, once I'm consciously aware that resentment is, is what gets me and fear and my dishonesty and my selfishness, once I know that and once I know I'm in it, I'm not fighting the emotion. I'm fighting booze. Because the bottom line for me is not what I'm feeling. The bottom line for me is I will drink. I will go back to something that you've convinced me a month ago or a week ago or yesterday that's going to kill me. I will go back to it based on the way I feel. The delusion that I'm like other people, drunk, with booze in my system, with none in my system at all, or right now today, without the obsession, sober, has had to be smashed. And I would say if there's one sentence in this book that sums up every problem I've had since the obsession to drink has been removed, it would be that, the delusion that I'm like other people right now today. I can do what he can do. I can stay angry. I can stay afraid. I can retaliate. I can get revenge. See, I think I'm like normal people now because I forget that you didn't take away my problem. You took away my solution. And now what's my solution? And I also forget what's going to get me back to the first drink. So if I really start to look at the first step in depth and I come to the admission about the body and I come to the admission about the mind and I can really only find that by looking back through my drinking, I then get to look at, can I manage my life now, today? sober. So I had to try that. I'm a hard-headed alcoholic. I had to try that. And I woke up four and a half, five months dry, and that paragraph on page 52 fit me perfectly. Absolute untreated alcoholism. I was having trouble with personal relationships. I couldn't control my emotions. I was prey to misery and depression. I wasn't making a living that was satisfying. I had a feeling of uselessness. It was full of fear. I was unhappy, and that was baffling because I was further away from my last drink than I'd ever been in 17 years. So I start to see that lack of power is my problem. And on page 45, that's exactly what they finally have gotten me to see. Lack of power is my dilemma. I have to find a power by which I can live. Sinaritin, it doesn't just say quit drinking. I have to find a power by which I can live. See, I needed that before I ever took a drink. It has to be a power greater than myself. Obviously. So my next question should be, where and how am I going to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable me to find power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. Now, it's interesting there. It doesn't say the main purpose of this, the main object of this book is to enable me to find a power greater than myself so I can solve my problems. This is one of those statements we're going to see from here on that separate this process from self-help from therapy. See, see, what I want to do is I want to take the second step and I want to take the third step and I want to write an inventory and I want to read it to somebody and I want to see my character defects and then I want to forget about six and seven and then I want to work on myself really hard. Now I'm working on this and now I'm working on that. See, because I think I've done this work to get some power so I can solve my problems. It says here, the main object of this book is to enable me to find some power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. 
I've also seen that my problem is much deeper than I thought. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Where did it start? See, I always thought the progression of my disease began with my first drink and ended with my last. And I'm here to tell you, uh, I've been around long enough to know that my disease did not end with my last drink, or I wouldn't be here today. And I have also written enough inventory to know that my disease did not begin with my first drink. The root of my disease is spiritual in nature, and it was there before I ever took a drink. They helped me see the insanity, and they helped me see that it's not what I did under the influence. And they gave me that exercise I talked about to make a list of the 10 craziest things you've ever done. And I made that list and every one of them was under the influence. And the guy laughed at me and he said, the number one craziest thing you ever did, every time you did it, you were absolutely bone dry with nothing in your system at all. And that was to pick up another drink based on your experience with alcohol. So, can I answer those questions on page 45? Do I believe that lack of power is my problem? Do I believe I have to find a power by which I can live? And do I believe it has to be a power greater than myself? If I can answer those, then I should probably obviously ask, well, where and how do I find this power? It's interesting, in about 10 pages, they're going to tell me exactly how and exactly where to find it. Back on page 44, the second paragraph, they're now going to start to talk to me. You see, I didn't even know I was an agnostic because I didn't know what the difference was between an atheist and an agnostic. And I was told that an atheist is a person who denies the existence of God, period. And an agnostic believes that there's a God, but does not believe that that God can work personally for him in his life. And I thought that that's what I was. I thought for some reason I'd done certain things in the past and God had given up on me. He was a, he was a vengeful God. He was keeping score. He was keeping track. And he was punishing me. And I'd given up the idea altogether a long time ago. I was taken to the Catholic Church as a child and to the Congregational Church. And one was really bland and one was really scary. And I was stuck somewhere in between. So they start to talk to me, the person who doesn't think that this power can really work in, their, in his life. To one who feels he is an atheist or an agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. The spiritual experience I've just admitted I need to recover from the illness that I suffer from. But to continue as I am means disaster, especially after I've admitted that I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. I've admitted that. I'm a drunk that wants to quit and sees that I can't. That's a hopeless condition. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live a spiritual basis are not, are not easy alternatives to face. Now, the first time I didn't think much of that because I just didn't want to die. And the, 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 the idea that I could live a spiritual way was unknown to me, but it wasn't that scary. But now that I've done that for a while, a little while, and I know a little bit about what that entails, both of those alternatives are scary to me. In the chapter, There's a Solution, it talked about none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of pride, the confession of shortcomings which this process requires. That's a little bit about what it takes to live on a spiritual basis. There are days when to die is a little more attractive than to continue living on a spiritual basis. But thank God I have some tools that have been given to me to get out of places like that. So at this point, when I'm facing my own agnosticism, my doubt and my prejudice about God and how he has or hasn't worked in my life, these are scary alternatives. Especially if some of you come from backgrounds where you've tried different things a little more than I have where you've tried certain religions, where you've tried certain spiritual things. The idea 
even though it's right in front of you that you're ready to die from alcoholism and the only other alternative is to live on a spiritual basis, those can be real scary, those two alternatives. But it isn't so difficult. About half our original fellowship were of exactly that type. Agnostic. At first, some of us tried to avoid this issue, hoping against hope. I think that's a very interesting statement, hoping against hope. We were not true alcoholics. But after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. That's something I had to face. Do I believe I have to find a spiritual way of life or else die? Perhaps it is going to be that way with you. But cheer up, something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics. Our experience shows that you need not be disconcerted. Now they help me look at what I've been raised with and everything I tried to get along the way. If a mere code of morals, I was given values and beliefs and morals as a kid. I knew right from wrong. But if a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. But I found that those codes and philosophies did not save me no matter how much I tried. I could wish to be moral. I didn't want to keep breaking my mother's heart. I didn't want to keep being a liar. I could wish to be moral. I could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, I could will these things with all my might. But the needed power wasn't there. My human resources, everything I can bring to bear, the money, the education, the family, the friends, my human resources, as marshaled by my will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. The beginning of that paragraph, they asked me to look at a mere code of morals, or a better philosophy of life. They asked me, is what I read in this book, the, living by these principles, helping others, self-sacrifice, is what's in this book a better philosophy of life? And I said, yeah. And they said, do you think that that philosophy by itself will save you, or do you need some power from the process which goes along with that philosophy for living? kind of like prayer without power. It's kind of like having a set of values and beliefs and morals as a kid and really wanting to live up to them and not being able to. That's how frustrating coming to this program, being given a set of principles to live by, and then finding you don't have the power to live up to them. It's kind of like drinking with a head full of AA. We might not keep you sober, but we'll sure mess up your drinking. Well, if you come here being more, a moral degenerate like me and they start to feed you a bunch of these principles that they tell you you have to live by to stay sober and then you don't get any power from this process, you just sit around in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous waiting for the day when you're going to become honest and unselfish, you have a miserable experience in, in store for you and that has a lot to do with why people see that they finally hit a sober bottom. You know, I can't apply this better philosophy. I've been given philosophies and techniques and morals and values and stuff I've wanted to live up to all my life, but I didn't have the power to apply it. So I'm seeing at another level the powerlessness. You know, it's great to see it in my symptoms. I can't control the amount I drink once I start, and I can't keep myself stopped, and that's a physical craving with a mental obsession. But what about down where I live, and now that you've taken the booze and the drugs and the, everything out of my system? What about emotionally? They took me back, and they helped me look at that paragraph once again on page 52, and they asked me this. Can you sit in a chair right now today, now that you're sober, can you sit in a chair and do everything for yourself that drug that booze and drugs used to do when they were working? So I went back through and I looked at what did the drugs and the booze do when they were working? Well, they made the fear go away and pushed me across the gym floor to go ask a girl to dance that I couldn't before I drank. They made me brave and strong and funny. They set me out there in the world to make a, a futile attempt at living life. They took the pain away. Alcohol took the pain away, made sense out of things, helped me to feel apart. Can I sit in a chair now today and do that? Can I fix myself? 
Can I make those things on page 52 disappear? Can I make fear go away? Can I make that feeling of uselessness disappear? Can I make a personal relationship better on my own will? And I started to see the level of the, the, the unmanageability of my life is within. And the unmanageability of my life lives where the booze and the drugs used to go and make it all better. And I can't manage that. So I really start to see the depth of lack of power. And I really start to see what a dilemma that is. I was also told this, lack of power is only a problem when you finally want to do something. Lack of power was not a problem when I accepted being powerless and my life being unmanageable. But the day it became absolutely unacceptable, being powerless and my life being unmanageable, and I wanted some help, but I saw that I couldn't do that, then lack of power is a dilemma. Before that, it wasn't a dilemma because I pretty much thought I knew where to go to get power, except it didn't work anymore. Lack of power is only a dilemma if you want to do something with your life and your life is within. I don't find my disease within, and I do not find the unmanageability within, because if I do, I'm going to have to work on it out here to fix it in here, and it doesn't work that way. I found my disease within, I found the unmanageability of my life within, and the great promise was, if you can find both of those things within, the great news is the solution is within. The solution is not out here. Let's get this and this and this and the job and the car and the woman and all your ducks in place and then everything will be fine and you won't suffer from this disease and your life won't be unmanageable. That's a fantasy. They start to talk about doubt and prejudice. What I've put between me and God since I was a kid. When we mention God, we have reopened a subject which our man thought he had neatly evaded or entirely ignored. That's me. They know how I feel. They've shared my honest doubt. Honest doubt. People like me had honest doubt about God. Well, if, he, if he's real and he works in people's life, how come when I asked him, he didn't? Because I always asked him for what I wanted. I never asked for his will. How come I turned out so messed up? I mean, there was some real honest doubt there. Mm -hmm. And prejudice. Well, he works for them. Why won't he work for me? He says that he's forgiven and, 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 and God works in his life. Why won't he do that for me? There was a lot of honest doubt and prejudice. I've been so violently anti-religious. That's me. To me, the word God brought up a particular idea of him which someone had tried to impress on me during childhood. A, a punishing God who keeps track and keeps score. Perhaps I rejected that particular conception because it seemed inadequate. With that rejection, I imagined I'd abandoned the God idea entirely. Where I lived on the streets, the thought that faith and dependence upon a power beyond myself was weak, even cowardly. I know how, I know how that feels. I looked upon this world, warring individuals and warring theological system and inexplicable calamity with deep skepticism. So we're looking at the kinds of things I've put between me and the idea of a, of, a, of a loving God. Doubt, prejudice, skepticism. I looked askance at many individuals who claimed to be godly. How could a supreme being have anything to do with it all? And who could comprehend a supreme being anyhow? Yet in other moments I found myself thinking when enchanted by a starlit night, who then made all this? There was a feeling of awe and wonder, but it was fleeting and soon lost. I had those experiences. Camping and out in the woods and growing up in Michigan and going to camp and seeing the ocean and the Great Lakes. Yes, I have had these thoughts and experiences. They want to make haste to reassure me that they found as soon as they were able to lay aside some of this prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than themselves, they commenced to get results. Even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power which is God. Thank God I don't have to figure it out. I thought when I saw God as we understand him in the, in the third step, this decision that I was headed for, 
I thought when, before I got to the third step, somewhere in this second step I was going to have God figured out, defined, and comprehended. And they told me if you could figure him out, you would be him. If you understood God, you would be God. That I could just start with a simple conception. Even just a willingness, a willingness to be willing to believe that maybe there's some power that can work in my life. And I think if you've really seen the first step, I mean, there's really nowhere else to go. You know, you can't really go to the second step in a good mood. You can't really go to the second step from a good place. And I have a hard time seeing how people go to the second step from a place of acceptance in the first step. I mean, it's kind of like when it's unacceptable, when I've really seen the powerlessness and the unmanageability and I don't want to die. I mean, I'm right there. There, there better be something. Much to my relief, I discovered I did not need to consider another's conception of God. Boy, was that a biggie. I mean, every place I ever went, they said, you're welcome here as long as you believe the way we believe. Thank God AA doesn't do that. They let me choose my own conception. And at that time, all I chose was power. The, the idea that I need power, and it better, it better be greater than me. I had a problem with the word God. And that's okay. They told me that was all right. That I don't need to consider anyone else's conception. My own conception, however inadequate, would be sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with him. As soon as I admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, I began to be possessed with a new sense of power and direction, provided I took other simple steps. I hear people all the time that think you go through the first three steps, if at all, and you start to get some, some stuff in your life, some promises. This says I can start with my own conception, and as soon as I can admit that, I will, I will start. I will begin to be possessed with a new sense of power and direction, provided I continue to take other simple steps. I have found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. Why should he? I mean, he's everything. And this last three lines is where I started to find some ideas that would work in a conception for me. To me, the realm of the Spirit is broad and roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men. I heard an old-timer one time in Texas, and he said, if you're working with somebody or if you're having trouble yourself coming up with some, a conception that works for you, go through this chapter and look every time they use a capital letter in a word where it shouldn't be capitalized and you will find words that will help you choose a conception, like we've just read. Creative intelligence, spirit of the universe, the word power. They will use these terms all the way through this chapter, but the ones that helped me was when they talked about broad and roomy, never exclusive or forbidding. I think the first conception I chose was that, that I wanted to believe, I was willing to believe in a loving God, that would forgive me for everything I had done and work in every area of my life. That has strengthened and grown, and thank God that step does came to. doesn't say you take the second step and wake up the next day with absolute faith. It says you will come to believe, and that second step gets stronger all the time. When, therefore, they speak to me of God, they mean my own conception. This applies, too, to other spiritual expressions which I'll find in this book. I shouldn't let my prejudice that I have against spiritual terms deter me from honestly asking myself what they mean to me. At the start, this was all I needed to commence spiritual growth, to affect my first conscious relation with God as I understood Him. Afterward, I will find myself accepting many things which then seemed entirely out of reach. That was growth. But if we wished to grow, we had to begin somewhere, so we used our own conception, however limited it was. I could start with a simple conception. Maybe it's going to be as simple as I'm willing to believe that there's some power greater than me. I mean, my God, look at the higher powers you've had already. I started to examine that. 
I've, 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 I've come to believe in some of the strangest higher powers you could imagine. Women, sex, money, geographical locations, groups of people, books, philosophies. They told me this next question was the first half of the second step. And they were going to break this second step up into two parts. And at the first question that I needed to answer was, do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? Some people say that's the first question. Some people say that's the first half of the first step, I mean the second step. Some people say that's the first half of the second step prayer. However you want to look at it, that was the first question that I needed to answer. And there was really only two questions, two major questions that needed to be answered from this chapter. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that there is a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. We talked about the cement. Now, this, once again, is not going to seem real important until you get to the end of a fifth step and they ask you to go home and review the cement and ask yourself, are the stones properly in place? This is the first stone we're going to put on that foundation. Page 17 told me how to make the cement. Two parts. The feeling of having shared in a common problem and the common solution found in this book. We built a foundation in the first step. And if that foundation is strong, I don't have to go, I don't ever have to go any further than on that foundation. And now we've placed the first stone on that foundation. You know, the cornerstone of a building, they put the date on it and it's the first stone they put in place. Well, here's the cornerstone of my sobriety, the cornerstone of this spiritual structure they begin to talk about. Either willing to believe or a belief that there is a power greater than myself. That was great news to me, for I had assumed that I could not make use of spiritual principles unless I accepted many things on faith which seemed difficult to believe. Earlier, they talked about a way that faith can be acquired. And um, this sentence they talked about the idea, do I have to accept the second step on faith, or can it start at a simpler level, just a simple belief? Yes, I'm willing to believe. And I, and I was told that there will be a process to go from, from a simple belief to absolute faith, point A, point B. And that ironically, it will be the same process that you have used to come to believe and have faith in everything you've ever had faith in in your life. So they asked me, what are some of the things you've had faith in before you came to Alcoholics Anonymous? And of course, the number one thing that I had faith in for longer than anything was booze. I mean, I had faith in mommy and daddy and a couple women here and there, and I had some faith in money. I had some faith in... Um, places I could go, groups of people, books. But for this exercise, I chose alcohol. And they asked me to imagine somebody coming to me the day before I took my first drink and setting a bottle of booze down in front of me and saying, Joe, this stuff is going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. This stuff is going to be the dominating force in the next 17 years of your life. It's going to put you in the penitentiary, 10 institutions. It's going to destroy friends and girlfriends and your family. But it's also going to take that confusion and that fear and that, that stuff inside of you, and it's going, to, it's going to make it go away for brief periods of time. It's going to work in your life but then it's going to turn and almost destroy you. 
you know, what would you, what would I have said to that guy? What would I have said to the guy who came to me the day before I took my first drink, who laid out everything booze was going to do for me and to me? I would have said, you're crazy. I don't have any faith. I don't have any faith in what you're saying. But I heard it's a fun thing to do, so let's try it. I'm willing to believe that this stuff that you tell me is so much fun might work, so let's try it. Why did I start the process with alcohol? I started with a simple belief. Maybe this is what it's cracked up to be. Maybe this is fun. My brothers say it's fun. My sister says it's fun. Everybody says it's fun. Let's give it a go. And I started the process with alcohol at a simple level. Yeah, I'm willing to believe this might be fun. Okay, so then what did I do? I reached over and I picked up a bottle and I made a decision and I took some action. And I took some action. And I took some action, and after a period of time, it's probably different for all of us, I got some results that I could see, feel, use, and direct in my life. Then I had faith in booze. So what's the same process that's going to take us from a simple belief at the second step, willing to believe, to absolute faith somewhere down the road? Well, you're going to do the same thing. You're going to make a decision based on a simple belief, based on the first step. You're going to make a decision in the third step. You're going to take some action. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And those promises are going to start to come true in your life, like at the ninth step, like at the third step, like at the tenth step. You're going to get some results that you can see, feel, use, and direct in your life. You're going to get some power. Then you'll have faith. So the same process that took place with everything in my life that I ever had faith in is what's going to take place in this process. Faith will come as a result of res as as the direct result of some results that you can see and feel. They're not going to ask you to take the second step and then when you wake up tomorrow morning, ask you, do you have absolute faith in that power? I think um, next week we'll start with um, the second question in that depth. Thank you, Mr. Joe Hawk, once again for the legacy that you left behind for all of us. Uh, hope one day that we, all of us, listening in are able to meet you and greet you at that big meeting in the sky blessings now on to a little bit of a listener feedback hector writes in and hector says good morning john well good morning hector he says i am uh, in recovery, and I live in Dallas, Texas, and I would like to be added to the email list. Well, Hector, you are on it now. By the way, if there's anybody else out there who would like to be added to the email list, write me at john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com, and we will get you added to that list. And also, for those of you who haven't joined our super secret Facebook group, we always get new listeners at the beginning of January, and so just in case you're not aware of it, you can go to the Facebook application. You can search up Sober Speak Secret Group. Ask for admission into the group and we will get you on in there. And if you are not following us on La Instagram, yes, we are cool. We have an Instagram account. Uh, and it is at Sober Speak, all one word. We would love to have you follow us. Anyway, uh, Hector goes on. He says, I am coming back from a relapse and I now have 29 days. Uh, all I've been doing the past month is AA meetings, talking to others in recovery and listening to podcasts nonstop. Uh, I've gone back and listened to many of the older ones you have on Spotify. Best regards, Hector well, Hector P., so good to hear from you. You're in my neck of the woods. Uh, hopefully, we uh, run across each other face-to-face uh, -face here one of these days soon. But uh, thank you for writing in, and you are on the email list now, my friend. 
Jeremy writes in, and the subject line is Brad L. And he's talking about Brad L., who did an episode with us a few weeks ago. And he says, Hi, John. I love your podcast. My name is Jeremy. Oh, he spells his last name, but I'm not going to say it. It is an MC, though. Muck. My name is Jeremy Muck. He says, I've been sober a little over 18 years, and I recently found your show. It is awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for listening in. He says, I'm wondering if you had any contact info that you could share for Brad L. from your November 24th show. I really enjoyed his take on the spiritual approach. Thank you so much. I'm excited to continue listening, Jeremy. Well, Jeremy, as you know, I got you in touch there with Mr. Brad L. And I hope you guys are able to strike up a conversation. And Brad is, gosh... He's one of a kind, and we're going to be having him uh, on an upcoming episode as well. So uh, uh, we can all look forward to that. Lisa writes in and she says, Hi, John. My name is Lisa. I just celebrated 21 years of continuous sobriety. Good for you, Lisa. I live in New Jersey now, but I am moving to Fort Worth, Texas. Yeehaw, Lisa, at the end of January. My husband, Jim, is also in AA. We met in a meeting and we waited until my one-year anniversary. Oh, and he waited until my one-year anniversary to speak to him. That's great. That's great. She says, we are now married 16 years. God bless you, Lisa. She said, I started listening to your podcast when COVID hit, and I've been listening ever since. My husband and I are planning on going to the Frisco, Texas meeting you mentioned on your podcast. We are looking forward to starting a new chapter in our journey to Texas, get get connected with fellow members, joining a home group, and living a sober life. It's going to be back to basics for us. Three exclamation points. All the best, Lisa and Jim S. Well, Lisa and Jim S., come on down. Like we say here, welcome to Texas. It is a great country. And uh, and come on over to the Frisco group. We would love to meet both of you eyeball to eyeball. Thanks for writing in. Alan writes in, oh, this is my friend Double A. And Alan says, John, thank you again for the opportunity your podcast and servitude. I love his writing. Servitude has afforded me as well as the shout out in Cyberland. Mucho gracias. Well, you get another one. He says, may God continue to prove, uh, to provide the wind beneath your wings and the desire in your heart to serve. Double A. Well, double A, you you really have a way with words. And thank you very much. And double A has been really, really kind to me. Uh, and what I mean by that is I get uh, inmates uh, who write in and are looking for a, I don't know, a, a pen pal, I guess is what you want to call it via, via email, actually, nowadays is what we do. And, and, he, and, and he takes that on with enthusiasm and, and communicates with the guys. And I'm so appreciative to AA. So anyway, uh, and also AA, may God continue to put, provide the wind beneath your wings and the desire in your heart to serve. Thank you very much. Sam writes in, he says, hi, John, my name is Sam from Pensacola, Florida. I just got out of prison on December 3rd, and I listened to your podcast while I was in there. However, I have had trouble staying sober since my release. I just wanted to tell you your podcast helped me a lot when I was locked up. Love you, buddy. Love back at you, Sam. Um, And... My friend, just keep getting back up on that horse and riding it. I know we're not supposed to give it advice. Well, let me just put it this way. I was in and out for three years myself, my friend, uh, going through all sorts of trouble. And the only thing that I did right is I just kept sewing back up. The last time I got, I came in, I didn't even pick up a desire chip because I didn't think it was going to work. But it's been a few days now. And by God's grace, I've been sober a little while. So Sam, you can hang in there, my friend. Uh, God bless you. And thank you for writing in. All right, everybody. 
Valdar is another episode in the can, as they say. Uh, Keep coming back. It works if you work it. May God bless you and keep you until then. I take this a week at a time. I'm hoping to see every, not see everybody. Um, you never, I, in fact, you know, it's interesting. I just don't put my image out of there, out there, just kind of out of respect for, I'm not that ugly. <laughs> I just do it out of respect for the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I, uh, oh gosh, what what was I saying now? Oh, yeah, yeah. I take this one week at a time. I, I, I hope to be back next week. Uh, but, oh, I said I'll see you then, but I'll not really see you then. You'll you'll hear me then, and I'll receive some of your communication then. I don't even know how to put that, but um, we'll hear each other or something like that. God bless you. Love you guys. Thanks for listening in. Bye-bye.